Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Today's guest is Ed Arnett. Ed is the CEO of the Wildlife Society, whose mission is to inspire, empower, and enable wildlife professionals to sustain wildlife populations and habitats through science-based management and conservation. So you might be wondering, why is this relevant to you as an aspiring hunter or angler? And I guess what I would say to you regarding that is, you know, I really see these wildlife professionals uh, as the people um, who really are the gatekeepers of the seventh principle of our North American model of wildlife conservation. And if you're not familiar with that, I'll put the link to it in the show notes. But uh, the seventh tenet of that is that scientific management is the proper means for wildlife conservation. And here's the thing. If you love to hunt and fish, or if you're thinking about hunting and fishing, you really have to understand how this model works in North America, because it's the reason we have places to go and the healthy populations of fish and wildlife that we love to chase after. And when things get a little bit out of whack, it's also the system and the people that work to keep that in balance and make those improvements and really do it from a scientific perspective. So today you're going to get a crash course on a few topics related to wildlife management and conservation. Uh, Ed has been working in this world for decades. Uh, Before taking the helm of the Wildlife Society, he was the chief scientist for the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. And he was also, prior to that, the lead scientist for Bat Conservation International. So he's got a diverse background, and his perspective also takes into account his personal love of hunting and fishing. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Ed Arnett, CEO of the Wildlife Society. Ed, welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. How are you doing today? Hey, Mark. Great to see you. I'm doing good. Doing good. What's new in uh, Loveland, Colorado? Well, it's a little cold and snowy today. We got a little bit of weather coming in, but we could use a a heck of a lot more snow and water. We're we're in drought, as you probably know. Yeah, no, absolutely. Winter last couple of days (laughs) been pretty warm, pretty mild. Has it? Yeah, it's it's been pretty cold up here. We've got a pretty good base of snow, which is is going to be really helpful. I was talking to some you know, some, some friends in the fire service and, and such, and, and they're pretty happy about a lot of the snow cover we've got, but uh, we can always use yeah. more. Yeah. We never complain about too much water in the West, even uh, sometimes during uh, <laughs> flood periods. So, right. <laughs> and we're well, dependent conver- on a snowpack, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> most of our yeah. uh, precipitation comes in the form of snow. So were those, um, how far away were those th- that recent fire fr- from from you? T- 
too close to home. Thanks for asking. A lot of people reached out to me. Uh, They were close. Uh, They were closer to some friends of mine and obviously way too close for people that were affected. And it was just awful. Um, They were about 35 miles south. Um, You know, the Cameron Peak fire a couple of years ago. uh, Was it last year? It was the year before last. Um, It was within about three miles of the last flame. But um, I remember walking outside one morning and um, or one afternoon. Actually, it looked like morning, like a beautiful sunrise. It was just orange, but it was apocalyptic. I mean, there was ash raining down and I've fought fires, so I know what it's like to be on the front line. Um, I have not been in a situation where the fire is just feet away from your house. So I can't fathom what those people were thinking and going through scrambling out. But I mean, there literally was no time. There was a perfect storm of the, of the dry weather, the grass and the other fuels that were feeding this. And once it got started, the winds kicked up in excess of, uh, you know, 80 plus miles an hour is hurricane force wind. It was absolutely the perfect storm of disaster. And, over uh, over a thousand homes, right? Yeah, it was yeah. Uh, it was just awful. So, uh, and they, in an urban they, setting like I like I'm yeah. living in, I mean, we're we're out in the, a little bit uh, away from downtown, but it's still what I would call an urban setting, and that was totally suburbs and surrounded by green space and you know uh, probably a few ranches here and there, but just the dryness of the conditions. Um, and the fuels that were surrounding there, once it got going and then that wind hit, yeah, it was, it was the perfect storm for, for fire disaster. No question. So, yeah, scary stuff. Well, let's, uh, let's, uh, switch to a little bit more uplifting topic. Uh, congratulations on, uh, on your being appointed as the CEO of the wildlife society. Uh, well, Thanks very much. I appreciate it. You know, you and I've been trying to get together for a while and I was when I was chief chief scientist at the TRCP. So right. I have since switched jobs and uh yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. It uh it, it it's uh it's a great opportunity and um I'm just thrilled to to be part of my professional organization, which I have been a member of since nineteen eighty four, since I was That's, an undergrad. Uh, so you ago. know the organization well. So you you took the helm in like November or when was it? Yeah, it's just recent. this past November. So I I still uh, I'm still getting my legs under me and drinking out of a fire hose. And as much as I do know about the organization, uh, it's amazing how much we have going on and and how much there is to to account for. It's been a while since I've uh, been in a leadership role like this where you have all the everything is under your purview. So yeah, it's right. uh, but it's great. It's great. Lots of challenges and. And uh, but a ton of rewards. So and a great way to cap off my career of 30 plus years now. That's great. So maybe help us understand a little bit, you know, about the organization. And, and I guess maybe the, the, let's start with the people within it. Um, you're a wildlife biologist. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, you've got your Ph.D. in um timber wood, if I recall. Well, it was forest ecology um, for science at Oregon State University, but I studied bats in managed forest situations. So I was radio tagging bats and following them around the woods in different uh, uh, harvest scenarios. So we were looking at areas that were unharvested, those that were heavily harvested, and kind of some of the mix in between of moderately managed forests and uh, looking at habitat use patterns and such. So I decided to get my degree in uh, in forest in the forestry department because I already had other wildlife degrees and just just to add some diversity. 
That's great. That's great. What's the what's the current um, situation with bats with like the white nose? Uh, is it called a syndrome or or whatever it is? Uh, is that mostly out east still, or is that? Oh, it's is, spread I'm, all the way to the west now, and um, you know there is some promising news coming out about some cures. I haven't been keeping up on the science. Uh, a lot lately. I've been kind of out of the, I studied bats for 20 plus years, uh, mainly in, you know, looking at it, uh, f- at it from a wind energy and, and uh, timber harvest perspective. But I also did oversee the white nose program for a brief period of time when I was at Bat Conservation International. And, and it, it was devastating. It's a, a classic invasive fungus that, that just devastated native bat populations here. And uh, they're starting to recover a little bit, as I understand it from my colleagues, but uh, it wiped out millions of bats. I'm not going to give you the exact numbers because I haven't been, again, uh, checked into it lately, but it's in the millions of bats that were killed. And these are all cave roosting bats um, for the most, well, no, not for the most part, they are cave roosting bats. And then, um, and then of course, you got wind energy impacts on uh, primarily tree roosting species, uh, that uh, don't necessarily hibernate. They, they migrate, uh, kind of follow weather and food uh, north and south. And um, so bat, bat populations in North America are getting a, a double whammy amidst all the other things that affect yeah. their, their population. So, yeah. So your organization, so the Wildlife Society is, is, is primarily made up of wildlife biologists, correct? Correct. Yeah. We were formed back in 1937. Um, and it, and it all kind of started, um, and this is a very brief, uh, cursory overview of kind of how things went, but back in the mid thirties, uh, some biologists were getting together, uh, talk, discussing of the issues of the day and challenges to management. And that actually, the, that gathering morphed into what we now know as the, the, uh, North American, um, conference, uh, natural resource, wildlife and natural resources conference, that's been going on for, for quite some time, but the wildlife society was formed in 1937 and, uh, Aldo Leopold most assuredly had his fingerprints all over this. Uh, one might think he might've been our very first president of the wildlife society, but he wasn't, he was the third, uh, from 1939 to 1940. But, um, you know, the conservationists of the day that were developing this discipline, Leopold of course gets the credit for, uh, develop, you know, defining the discipline of wildlife management itself. But these were contemplations and discussions among a number of folks uh, about formalizing this as a discipline. And, and Leopold was the first professor of wildlife management, uh, if you will, to teach it as a, as a discipline. So we have deep, deep, uh, deep roots uh, in, the, in the wildlife movement of that era. The, the National Wildlife Federation was formed about the same time as well. Um, but, uh, we, we've been in existence a long while. We, uh, uh, our, our primary membership certainly is wildlife biologists and it, it's spread across, uh, state, uh, federal agencies, universities and students and nonprofits. I've, I've got the statistics if anyone was ever interested, uh, but, but, uh, quite a, quite a, a breadth of, uh, of, uh, different entities that biologists work for, um, and one of the interesting things that we've seen are some shifts now in the number of young professionals that are that that are members, as well as women and and diversity folks of diversity, people of color, and such. That's starting to to increase over the uh, our initiation back in the mid '30s, which at that time you might imagine was uh, 
uh, was certainly male dominated and white male dominated. So we've seen a lot of change over the over the last several decades. But great organization. Um, just it's the organization of of, of wildlife biologists. And, um, you know, our mission is pretty simple is to is to empower and enable our professionals to achieve their work, which is sustaining wildlife populations and, and habitats. So if you can, let's talk a little bit about um, you and what got you into this into this field and why it's important to you, because I, I've had more than a few people that I've talked to in recent years that say, if I would have only known about careers in a field like wildlife and, and others, I would, I would have done it. And they just weren't familiar with it. You know, maybe they didn't have a family member or friend who encouraged them in that direction. I, I think I've even mentioned you, you know, my wife talks about often about how back in high school, she did a, a profile of interests and how it could apply to a career. And, and back then it said, it said uh, she should go into agriculture, into farming, which she was so confused by. But now she interprets interprets it as if somebody would have said, because she thought, I'm not a farmer, I don't have family land where I could do that. But if it would have been couched in the context of the outdoors, wildlife, et cetera, she said it would have been a completely different conversation. Um, So, you know, what got you into, you grew up in Illinois, correct? Grew up in South Central Illinois in a rural community, rural farming community. And um, as you can imagine, uh, very uh, tied to the outdoors, uh, lots of opportunity. Uh, when you live in a rural environment like that, to to be outside, and my my grandfather took me hunting from ever since I was probably five to seven, somewhere in five to seven years old, I was running around with him, uh, and then I legally started. I say legally, not that I was illegally hunting, but you could legally start hunting as a as a child, as a young person at ten years of age. Uh, so he got me into the outdoors and and fishing and hunting and camping, those kinds of things that uh, stimulate the interest in wildlife for a lot of a lot of people. Um, it's not the only reason people like wildlife, but that certainly is uh, how a lot of biologists uh, traditionally got into the profession because they just loved animals and they loved to hunt. Uh, so my own personal experience uh, spawned from that uh, by just knowing, I didn't know what the profession was, but I knew that connection to the outdoors that had been established at a young age uh, I knew I loved wildlife and animals. Uh, I didn't know myself that there was a profession per se, but I used to watch a show called Wild Kingdom, and you may be old enough to remember Marlon Perkins and Jim Fowler, and, <laughs> yep. and that had a huge influence on me. I actually met Marlon Perkins down, and for those younger uh, listeners, uh, think Jack Hanna. Uh, Jack Hanna would be the contemporary for Marlon Perkins, if you will. Um but uh, I ran into him at the St. Louis Zoo. I lived just a few, you know, I don't know, 40 miles north of St. Louis or so. And and we used to go to the zoo all the time and happened to run into him one day. <laughs> met Marlon Perkins. Later in life, I actually met Jim Fowler, uh, which was an interesting, uh, interesting encounter. Um, but they were influential. I mean, they were out there, you know, doing the kinds of things that looked really fun and important. And so I knew there was something that could be done, but I didn't know what it was called at the time. And I didn't have a high school counselor advising me on this either necessarily. So they weren't necessarily privy to the fact that you, one could be a forester or a wildlife biologist or something to that effect. But I just took the initiative and kind of figured it out um, and started my schooling. And I knew I had to go to school. So that's 
that's uh, that's that's kind of how I got started, just uh, picking a natural resources program and and spawned into a bachelor's of wildlife management. Uh, and that's where I really got immersed into the profession. And in fact, I remember walking into one of the professors one day and just saying, hey, Dr. Mackey, how can I, you know, become more involved in this profession? And he didn't hesitate. First words out of his mouth was join your professional society. Hmm. So in 1984, I joined the Wildlife Society as a member and never have looked back. So that's kind of how I got into it. And then I just had a whole number of experiences along the way, different jobs and working for different actors. Is there a conversation at, at all within the, f- the the field, the space about um, the 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 shift maybe to fewer and fewer uh, either forestry or wildlife biologists um, having that hunting fishing background like you you had and I had and so many others, but with the changing sort of sort of societal uh, structure that, that there are fewer people hunting, fishing. And, and if so, what type of an impact do you think that's, that's having or could have? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there's a couple of different components to it, of course. I think, you know, in the profession, um, early on, most, most of the professionals did hunt and fish, or at least had some exposure to that. And that was a driver for a lot of us. And it's true even today, for sure. But I think we started seeing some shifts where, um, uh, you know, people that didn't necessarily have any exposure to to the outdoors got interested in wildlife for whatever reason. I can't speak for them, whether that came through watching television or, or, uh, or just some other general interest uh, from readings or whatever, but they didn't necessarily have a deep connection. Uh, we saw an emergence of a lot of quantitative experts in the wildlife field that uh, were extremely good at at uh, you know running models on populations and doing those kinds of things. But individuals that didn't necessarily uh, practice on the ground, boots on the ground wildlife management. So that that was a, a somewhat of a shift in the profession, but just in terms of societal changes, uh, we've seen this emerge more and more, even within our profession, but societally, uh, we're seeing more people that tend to view wildlife as a kind of an extension of their social network, um, you know, more in line with, uh, uh, you know, entities that are worthy of care and compassion, uh, as opposed to management. There's uh, a very interesting uh, set of studies that have been going on for a while from uh, professors in the Human Dimensions Department at Colorado State University, where I happen to be an, an adjunct faculty member as well uh, in the Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology. They've done some some interesting work looking at um, uh, how society views wildlife, and they categorize people based on their beliefs and and experiences and such. And so uh, those researchers categorized, uh, made four categories. One was called the traditionalists, um, which would be more of a utilitarian kind of a view where uh, people believe that wildlife should be managed for the benefit of people. Um, the, the mutualist view, and this was the one I just mentioned, they tend to view wildlife more as an extension of their social network, if you will. Um, 
uh, more uh, more human-like, if you will, uh, and just have very different views about what wildlife management should or shouldn't be. And then there's a third category was pluralists, which was they share both values of traditionalist and mutualist, depending on the context of what you're kind of talking about. But uh, and as one might gather, uh, or one might guess, I suppose uh, Native Americans tend to be more in that category where they utilize wildlife, but they have a different level of respect and uh, and such for for wildlife. And then a fourth category is just people that are completely distanced and have absolutely no connection uh, to wildlife whatsoever. That was pretty fascinating because, and I'm going on a little long here, but I think this was a fascinating bit of work. Um, in 2018, the publication that came out showed that of the survey respondents, and it, under the assumptions this was a representative sample of the population uh, and society, 28% were traditionalists, 35% mutualists, and that was on the rise and had risen from prior work. Uh, and 21% were pluralists and 15% were completely distanced. And where I was kind of going with this is that overall wildlifers tend to be more um, or less, they tend to be less mutualistic in the, as, as defined by these researchers than society as a whole, but that's changed. It's definitely increased over the past couple of decades. So very long answer to your question, yes, we are seeing these shifting views and valuations of wildlife societally, but we're also seeing some of that in the profession. Hmm. Um, and I think the impact really comes down to where people get their information, uh, how they how they view wildlife and how they accept wildlife management. This is where it definitely has an impact on managers. Uh, people are tending to be uh, less interested in hunting and fishing. They tend, uh, you know, in that mutualist category, um, they're less tolerant or supportive of lethal control mechanisms um, for situations of wildlife conflict. Um, certainly, uh, more urbanized environments have less connection and understanding of wildlife conflicts, although that's, I mean, there's certainly urban wildlife conflicts, but we're talking things like predators and, and livestock uh, interactions that urban people don't necessarily have much of a connection to that or an understanding. Uh, and then they tend to be more supportive of protection and preservation and uh, environmental regulation type approaches uh, or just a hands-off approach. And that all has consequences for, for wildlife management. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I want to see that study, and and I have heard of it. So if I could, if you could direct me to to where that's at, I'd yeah, love to, absolutely. To and there's a whole. I was going to say there's a whole field of human dimensions that has emerged. Uh, <clears throat> Dr. Dan Decker at Cornell uh, pioneered a lot of that work, but many people have been working on this this human dimension interface with wildlife management, which which was it was an enormous advancement in my opinion. Um, you know, societal values matter. Absolutely, I could I couldn't agree more. You know, my my background is is social science. It's psychology. It's uh, I worked in the business world for a long time, and um, you know, when it comes to a lot of this work, I've always looked at it and been fascinated within the outdoor space, within the conservation world, um, that 
I think traditionally, even even still in a lot of areas, there there isn't enough focus on on those human dimensions side of it. And that's why I loved seeing in this interview or this piece that was done on you for the Wildlife Society um, uh, Journal, uh, where I'm going to quote you here. You say community. Communicating our science and conservation efforts to the public is critical to maintain their understanding and support. And then you go on to say, if we don't have a public supporting wildlife, we're not going to have wildlife. And we're going to have wildlife managed in a manner that may be detrimental to many species and unsustainable over the long term. And so that really gets to a question I've got, which is, you know, where it's at today or where, you know, maybe there's good aspiration of where it's heading. You're talking very positively about the great work about uh, Dan Decker and others, but do you feel today there is enough connection between those who have the wildlife and forestry degrees and those who have are, are focused on the human dimension of that intersection? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I th- I think that, you know, there's always room for advancement and improvement and we've got a we've got a ways to go with connecting uh with the public. Um so I would I would say we've made strong advancements. I mean, this wasn't even I mean, look, Leopold, if you go back and read Leopold quotes, um, he recognized this. Now, he didn't live to see this emerging discipline that we now call human dimensions. I think that's one thing he would be deeply proud that uh, some of his inspirations and, and such uh, helped spawn that. Uh, but um, we've definitely made uh, strides, but we've got a long ways to go. And I think when you look at how you know the agencies, the federal and state agencies are, are, are addressing this, but there's some struggles uh, with it. Uh, it's it's a deviation from some past paradigms and and uh, approaches. But there's a there's a good document called the Relevancy Roadmap uh, that TWS did participate in, um, as well as many others. But that's a good document to take a look at. But the agencies are trying to figure out how uh, to engage other audiences. And you know the thing with the public is uh, the public trust doctrine and the the you know, one of the tenants, I know you wanted to get in later into the, into the North American model. And one of its fundamental tenants is wildlife as a public trust. That doesn't say explicitly the hunting and fishing uh, community or the hunting community in particular, it says the public and not all of the public uh, hunts and fishes. And again, we're seeing this, this slow moving deviation away from a departure from, you know, acceptance of hunting, acceptance of lethal control, acceptance of active wildlife management. Um, and th- there, there's gonna, there's gonna be some work to, there needs work to be, there's work that needs to be done, uh, to bridge those gaps and, and address this. And, you know, the hunting community is, I, I I've always said this for a long while now that there are some difficult conversations to be had that lie ahead in the human dimension space. And it's in, it's not necessarily just the wildlife biologists working with the human dimensions people. This is, you know, the hunting and fishing community being willing to have an open conversation with those that very much disagree with them. Um, part of that's an educational component. I don't think a lot of people that have uh, disparate views that of those of us in the hunting and fishing and active wildlife management community um, uh, necessarily uh, have been 
understood. They, they they may just they may get their information from a source that isn't complete or is biased in some way, shape, or form. And I'm not convinced that we've bridged that gap well with the public uh, to 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 fully appreciate. Um, or, or to ensure that they appreciate what wildlife management actually is and what, why it's necessary, at least from my perspective. Is so you're a hunter. Um, not everybody who, who's part of your organization is is a hunter, and I'm sure there's a lot of different views on that. Um, where do you see um, hunting as as a management tool, as as a wildlife management tool? Um, you know, there's, there's situations where it seems like it's very, very much accepted as a way to control population, to manage effectively, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, and in other cases, it, it, it seems like it's, it's not, uh, it's not considered acceptable by, by a lot of people. And so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And one that we'll be discussing, uh, for a while, I think as those values shift and, um, you know, to me, hunting is a lifestyle. It's uh, it's something I was brought up with. It's something I enjoy doing. Uh, people tend to forget that humans are predators. Uh, we've been we've been chasing <laughs> critters around in one way, shape, or form since uh, since the beginning of our speciation, <laughs> our, our species, um, and uh, throughout our evolution. But uh, times have changed, and not everybody does that, but it's been an integral part of my life. Um, and only when I went to school and, you know, started reading and understanding and uh, wildlife management and those and, and seeing it in practice, did I appreciate it as a tool? Um, there's absolutely no question that, you know, in a, in a sustainable multiple use type of a model uh, that hunting is a, a very acceptable form, uh, independent of the mutualistic views that, and, you know, animal rights type views that people may have, um, setting that aside, it's definitely a tool. And Leopold saw that, uh, in his, in his famous essay, thinking like a mountain and in the movie, you'll see it in the green fire, uh, when he witnessed the wolf die, uh, the last wolf he ever shot. That's when he had the epiphany of, um, this notion of excessive predator, uh, management to increase deer populations. Well, there's a threshold of how much the habitat can support. And whereas, you know, a deer, I think the, I'll, I'll paraphrase the quote is whereas a, a deer population can recover in a few years um, uh, from its wolves or, or hunting. And as, as we were talking about here, um, the mountain cannot, well, it'll take decades for a mountain to recover from too many deer. Uh, so the idea of uh, sustainable harvest, regulated uh, harvest, um, and, and and ensuring that sustainability over time is, to me, an accepted practice. It's proven with science, but there are deviations from that, and there are situations where where uh, harvest can have an impact on on a number of species, and of course, it can be very controversial with charismatic. Uh, megafauna, uh, very charismatic species like grizzly bears and wolves. Uh, that gets very controversial. Um, and then, you know, the whole trophy hunting versus recreational hunting, which they're not necessarily dissimilar, but um, this this perception and some level of reality of, of, of trophy hunting versus recreational and uh, food procurement type hunting. 
I do both. I do all of it, um, mm-hmm. quite frankly. Um, and, it, and it's uh, a little bit of this comes down to what your definition of trophy hunting is. I went out um, just last weekend and my new puppy happened to point its very first wild chucker. And prior to that, he pointed his first wild pheasant. That was a trophy in my mind. But that's <laughs> not what most people see as trophies. They're talking, uh, you know, somebody holding the biggest monstrous bull elk they could possibly have shot and holding it in a picture with a grip and grand photo. People view that as as trophy hunting or the harvest of, of a lion or, or a Cape buffalo or something to that effect. But all of it serves in some form as recreation. And, you know, it's not like people that shoot those trophies just waste the meat. That's against the law. So there's a food component there too. But I I put my meat in the freezer. I harvest uh, uh, animals for, for consumption, but I also enjoy the recreational aspect. I am not going to lie about it. I like being a predator. I enjoy it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this distinction between trophy and recreational hunting is a little blurry in my opinion because trophy is in the eye of the beholder so absolutely that's a very long question as you're finding out (laughs) i I provide long detailed answers uh but i think expect nothing less ed (laughs) well you know i think you know hunting is it, it it cannot be denied that it's uh controversial with many but it also can't be denied that it's an effective tool and it provides a portion of an economic uh, engine that is our outdoor recreation economy that cannot be denied. You you just simply cannot deny these are not fake jobs or uh, fake money. This is real money, real jobs, a real section of our economy that's into the hundreds of billions of dollars annually. Yeah, no, absolutely, and 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 I think those are important. Uh, sub points under the hunting uh, discussion and what I would say maybe in defense of hunting and it's and it's the the benefits of it. However, the thing that I come back to a lot of times also is is I would never want to um, be so reductive or, and, and reduce hunting down to what I hear people say a lot of times when a non-hunter says, okay, I understand the need for hunting because we need to control populations. And, and so it's like, that is one element of it, of, That's of wildlife one management. Element. That's right. It's one element, exactly. As well as the economic element, as well as, you know, for a lot of people, spiritual element, health element, any number of different things, recreation. Um, and, and I think it's difficult, I'll ask you this question, I think it's difficult to explain the hunting experience to someone who hasn't actually experienced it. I think you'll always fall short of having that person understand what it is. Again, you can, a person can say very, very sort of flippantly, okay, I understand the need to manage animals. We got too many deer, there's too many car crashes and it's dangerous. And so therefore hunting's good. Um, And so they understand that one component, but I think it's, it can be very difficult to truly for the non-hunter to truly appreciate it until they're part of it. Until they experience Um, it. Yeah. Until they experience it. Yeah. yeah. And I've seen it firsthand with many people who on their first hunt or on their second or third or fourth finally go, I get it now. I didn't yeah. understand it before. And it's different for every person because there's going to be different hurdles, different blind spots. Um, 
But, you know, I, I just love the idea of people getting out on a hunt for the first time. And maybe they're even just observing just to just to understand what it is. Just to understand better. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. and you know, it's it's interesting because I think uh, as a hunter, I enjoy wildlife uh, and and watching wildlife just as much, probably even more so than I do pursuing it and taking it. Um, that's partly why I became a biologist. You know, it's the, the power <laughs> of observation you know, watching animals, recording their patterns, gathering information. I mean, that's what wildlife science at its core is. And um, so for some, if some people think that, that hunters don't appreciate viewing and just, just sitting back and enjoying wildlife for the sake of enjoying wildlife, they're wrong. Most of us anyway. Um, But I think you're absolutely (laughs) right that until you go out and experience what it, and I'm not talking, you know, and this is nothing necessarily against, you know, long range shooters and those kinds of things, but um, not to pick on them, but I mean, it's, it's a different experience um, to actually, I mean, ultimately the, the traditional bow hunters probably have the strongest connection to what it means to be a predator (laughs) and and are on on as level a playing field as they're going to get. But independent of, of method of take until you really go out and learn how to track an animal, learn its patterns and, and all the things that go into having some level of success. It's not as easy as, as people think, or as the shows sometimes depict, or as the pictures that flood the internet or catalog selling hunts and such uh, would have you believe. Um, there's, there's more to it than that. And you're, you're right. It's very challenging to explain. Um, I think, you know, and I saw a study and I wish I had the statistics in front of me. I didn't pull it up, but I saw some of the motivate or some of the, um, uh, some of the information around why or, or what, how non-hunters felt about what, uh, the hunting experience means to people. And, and what surprised me was this, the connection to the food wasn't as strong as I thought it would be. You would think that would be a pretty strong selling point. And I don't remember the exact, uh, um, the exact data, uh, surrounding that, but it was, it was less than I would have expected, I guess. Um, but you know, the family connection and some history that, that would, that resonated, but, um, other, other things didn't. So that, that kind of information is helpful in trying to understand what people are thinking, but the actual hunting experience itself, you have to go out and, and really, really see it uh, and experience it before you can fully appreciate, at least from a hunter like myself. I've been going since I was, like I say, five, seven years old. And my, I don't remember the exact year. I should probably just pick one. But <laughs> well before <laughs> I was carrying a gun and legally hunting, I was going out and experiencing yeah. these things. Uh, it's And it's different. And, you know, when you have a late adult onset hunter or, or children that come up, you know, that haven't experienced it exactly the way maybe you or I have. Um it's it's fascinating to watch how they perceive the experience, and it's important to have the right mentor too. Um, I think that's really critical as well. You can have any kind any kind of experience you want with hunting, and it could be really negative uh, or really positive, or somewhere in between. So, mm-hmm. no, absolutely, you know, and and it and it can ebb and flow between that. You know, there's a, right. a a newer hunter. Um, that, that I was a mentor for at one point where he had wonderful high moments and then he 
with me had a, had a situation where he wounded an animal and uh it was it was a major low point it literally took him a couple years before he he could even talk to me about it because it, it really upset him um and so i and and again that's going to be different for every person and like you said the motivations whether it's food or family or social or adventure or health, the, the motivations are very different. And so it's, yeah. uh, it's definitely a unique, very personal experience for everyone. But, you know, to um, me, uh, just to build on that point of the, the young man who, who struggled with the law, that's, in my view, that's a good thing. Absolutely. That's demonstrating respect for the animals, respect for, um, the, 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 the sport itself and realizing that you're not going to be perfect. You're going to make mistakes, but it'll make you try harder not to make them mm-hmm. and to deal with them in as appropriate of a fashion as you possibly can spending two extra hours looking for a crippled animal, uh, dispatching it as quickly and humanely as possible. Should you pull off a poor shot, those kinds of things. And I don't always see that among the sporting ranks and it bothers me a lot. Yeah, absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more. And I and I would say, you know, having grown up with hunting like you from a very young age, um, knowing a lot of a lot of different hunters, I would say a lot of that the vast majority, if not all, new hunters that I know have a level of respect, reverence, and 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 sensitivity to those issues. Um, very that's very high and very good yeah. and and i would say in a lot of respects maybe better than than the traditional uh, a lot of the traditional hunters and uh and and that's i think a point in the in the camp of of why we need to bring new people in and and really the the benefits of of having new people who are are part of the hunting community the mentors are so important too i i feel like my grandfather was was a a strong mentor in his own right, in what he, you know, how he taught me what was kind of right and wrong with hunting. But I'll never forget when I was a young man, I was like, wasn't even in high school, I'm pretty sure. And I don't remember if it was Sports of Field or Field and Stream or Outdoor Life, what one of those magazines published an article. And I've, I've never forgotten it. And just the long and short of it was uh, father was, took his, his son pheasant hunting for the first time. And I think his hunting partner hit the bird and the, the kid uh, did shoot it or they shot it somewhat similar times, but the, the young man ran over, grabbed the pheasant um, proclaimed was, was glor- gloriously proclaiming it was his almost, you know, like getting argumentative that no, it's mine. It's not his, you know, he, the dad felt the, the other hunting partner had shot it Um and he took his gun away from him and wouldn't let him hunt for a long while. I don't remember how long, but he put him in hunting timeout because of that behavior that, no, it's mine. I shot it. I shot, you know, and just the way he responded to that situation was very disrespectful in the eyes of his father. I'm probably getting some components wrong there, but that's the gist of it was the, the kid was, was uh, not being respectful. Uh, and appropriate in the situation, in the eyes of his father. That could have gone any number of ways with with any other person. Who knows how how that would play out with different mentors? But it, it kind of describes to me the a little bit about. I just I've never forgotten it, uh, and I've I've always thought about it uh, uh, through the years when I'm trying to teach somebody to hunt or talk to them about hunting. 
about you know having that respect for the for the game and respect for your fellow uh, sportsmen and women that you're hunting with. So how do we? It's it's interesting you bringing up that story, and and I guess a, a, one of the questions I have for you um, maybe ties into this a little bit. Um, I guess part A of it is is the North American model of conservation um, as effective and as as appropriate today as it was when it was originally originally conceived. Um, and, and tied to that, in in a an era that we live right now, where there's such fluidity and tribalism on ethics and principles and values, how do we um, how do we create or promote a, a consistency of of what the hunting community values are and the conservation values? You know, the North American model um, is misunderstood, I think, in a lot, by a lot of folks. It's not understood at all or even appreciated or <laughs> known of by, by a number. And um, I, I think people have to appreciate what it, what it really is uh, as it was developed and articulated. In part, it's a description of, of history. Uh, and some have argued, and I think rightfully so, that it's not necessarily a complete history of conservation. Um, so a little bit of it's descriptive in that sense, uh, defining kind of what got us to our management systems, um, elimination of markets for hunting, allocation of wildlife by law, some of those tenants that are part of the model. Um, but it's also prescriptive in some 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 sense. Um, uh, you know, in that, uh, science is the, you know, it, it's prescriptive in different ways that, um, are, are very driven around game and hunting and game, game management and, and hunting and such. Um, so I think, you know, the, the, the principles of this model are, are, are reasonably solid. I don't think there's any any argument in my mind, I mean, there's argument about whether it's relevant today and can it use some changes, of course. Um, but I think at the time, the the crafters of of these principles that, that coined it as the North American model were basically saying, here are the key things that really led to our, you know, our current system of, of wildlife management. So, the, the seven tenants are the wildlife wildlife or a public trust resource. Um, that's that's a, a unique uh, thing in my opinion. It's not true everywhere in the world, but you know wildlife are managed as a public trust resource. Um, the elimination of markets for game that's a historic that's in a historical context because one of the criticisms I've seen of the model is that well you could argue that there are markets for game today. That's absolutely true. There's what, you know, other than damage control, why trap, for example, it's for fur yeah. and a market for product. So that yeah. is a market um, per se. That's but one example. Uh, but when they, when they were talking about the elimination of markets for game, this was the commercial market hunting era. And that was a very important step that led to uh, the conservation of game at that time. Allocation by law, that's relevant today. Uh, we have a, a system of laws uh, that define 
how we manage how we manage wildlife. Um, but when you start getting into things like wildlife should only be killed for legitimate purposes, uh, that's a tenet of the model. But it begs the question: Well, what's legitimate, and how how is that defined? Right. Um, it's certainly defined by law to some extent, but um, you know there there could be a there could be a series of debates about what constitutes legitimate use. Um, you know the the notion of wildlife being considered an international resource, another tenant. Uh, is solid. What that's basically saying is that there are no political, while I don't know political boundaries, we need to manage them more holistically. Um, science as the tool of discharge of wildlife policy isn't, is the sixth tenet of the model. And that's an interesting one because I think no one would argue that science needs to be the basis for informed management decisions. Um, but is science driving the decision-making or is it informing them? And is science always uh, the underpinning of every decision? That's, of course, the answer to that is no. Um, there's a lot of things that go into decision-making, and not always do we have the science uh, to back uh, every decision that's made. There are social and political and economic factors that weigh in, so it's not all 100% driven by science. And I guess I could argue that uh, some of the ways we manage populations haven't changed a whole lot for decades and millennia, uh, for that matter. Um, it's hard to it's hard to count certain critters and establish seasons. I you know, if if you ask me, where is the is the season setting for for dusky grouse in Colorado science base? I would probably say not really because I don't know what data go into that. Um, but as indicated by, you know, the season that's set for that species um, and its long-term sustainability, the populations go up and down as game birds do. They seem to be doing fine. But is there a scientific backing for three birds a day, nine in possession for a three-month <laughs> season? I, I can't answer that question on what the science basis of that is. So you could get into little technical arguments like that, but I don't think anybody would argue that science is proper. Uh, but then the last tenet is on the democracy of hunting, and it's it's a it's a it's a good tenet, but it's not all inclusive of conservation. I think that's where a lot of the argument comes in on the relevancy of the North American model. We could go on this for an entire podcast, but the reality is there it, it the the model tenets themselves are not necessarily all inclusive of all aspects of conservation. I think that's where a lot of the criticism comes in toward its relevancy. But I think people take this a little out of context in that, you know, uh, this was a description of the things that got us there in part, not a complete history. Uh, the, some of the arguments are, well, John Muir and some of the preservationist movements of that era at the turn of the century, as well as those in the 60s and 70s, play an important role too. And that's true. Um but I think a more holistic view of the principles of conservation is what's necessary for the future. And that begs the question, well, how do you define conservation? I dare anyone to Google that and see if you can come up with a very specific definition. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. I have my own thoughts on it, but, but um, there's a lot of variation in the, in the definition of conservation. But that's, 
yet another long-winded answer, but I think there's a lot that goes into that North American model and a lot of misconceptions and misinterpretations and, and a lot of uh, valid criticism, depending yeah. on your perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, another, I guess, uh, question that's that doesn't have a simple answer, uh, but in your mind, what are... What are the biggest challenges set set aside, set aside philosophical discussions of North American model, what have you? Um, what do you think are the most pressing issues in conservation in 2022? Because um, there's a there's a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, there really are. I mean, I for me, it all comes down to. Uh, changes in land use and habitat loss and fragmentation or degradation. I, I I think anyone that says uh, that puts that somehow low on the list uh, uh, really isn't cognizant of how fast things can change and are changing and have changed. Sage grouse are a good example. I mean, we've lost, you know, since uh, um, I, I want to say that uh, at least half of their range has been lost um, that has an impact on the long-term sustainability of populations. But even what habitat we have left for, for that particular species uh, is, you know, uh, partially being degraded or fragmented uh, continually. Uh, so, you know, I think uh, the, the changes in land use um, and, and habitat fragmentation and loss uh, will always rise to the surface as a, as a key threat. Uh, a biologist would be remiss not to bring up climate change. We have a change independent of source. It doesn't matter. Uh, no one can argue that the climate isn't changing and we're seeing a manifestation of habitat alteration uh, based on that climate change, whether it be uh, fire or loss of, uh, of uh, shoreline along coastal environments. Uh, pick your favorite environment. It's changing and it's a huge threat. Uh, there's no question. And along with uh, that and both of these, uh, there's the tie with invasive species. I think invasive species are are also a, a huge threat. Um, and, you know, on the political, philosoph- not philosophical, but kind of on the political front, um, I think uh, some of the things that we're seeing with um, ballot initiatives and, and legislative engagement in wildlife management we're seeing, uh, and this isn't new, this has been around for a while, but I, I still view it as a threat. It's it's really tying the hands of wildlife professionals and wildlife managers. So political engagement at the level that gets prescriptive is very mm. difficult and very challenging. It forces our state wildlife agencies and other, other entities that manage wildlife um, and, and habitat, uh, it forces their hand sometimes or puts them in difficult situations. Um, and that, that goes true with ballot, uh, initiatives. Um, sometimes ballot initiatives seem, seem, uh, appropriate on the surface, but they create serious challenges. I'm, and I'll just use Colorado as an example with the ballot initiative, uh, put forth for wolf reintroduction. Wolves, are here. They have been here. They've been coming and going uh, uh, for some time. Uh, we we established uh, recently. There was an established population uh, moving in and out of Colorado or very near Colorado, and and um, so they were going to get here eventually anyway. 
but the ballot initiative that uh, passed in Colorado by a razor, and I mean razor, razor thin margin, um, basically has now forced the issue upon the Parks and Wildlife Department to uh, work with the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, to get uh, an introduction going here in the state. Hmm. Uh, it, it, and I, I only bring this one up. I've dealt with a number of ballot box initiatives in ballot box states uh, or in ballot initiative states that I don't I don't differentiate this from uh, a ballot initiative that tells heart surgeons how they ought to be doing heart surgery. I don't think it's that different uh, on what kind of stent you can use in a heart or, you know, pick your favorite surgical practice. You're basically forcing upon the the professionals and the practitioners um a a way of doing management that's the same thing with legislative uh controls and certain you know legislation that uh, spawns in various states i think um that has certain kinds of threats to wildlife but it comes it, it centers on you know tying the hands of the wildlife professionals now having said that the wildlife, this, this, the wildlife is a public trust resource. And if they're not listening to that segment of the population that may want wolves in a particular state or may want to manage in a certain way, um, then this is the kind of thing that can manifest. So it, it's, a, it's a bit of a two-way street there. But um, I, I think some of the political intervention like this can have threats. Um, yeah. And then I'd come back to the... To the um, to the to the changing values uh, as a threat to wildlife, we're seeing again more distancing away from from um, uh, more urbanized environments, more distancing away from connections to wildlife, uh, an incomplete understanding of wildlife, wildlife management, wildlife professionals, wildlife laws, all the things that go into what we call wildlife management and or conservation, um, and uh, you know. My back to my quote: uh, If we don't have societal support for wildlife, we're not going to have wildlife. I didn't quite mean it that dramatically that everything's going away because uh, the public doesn't support it. But what I was trying to get at there was that the public and society as a whole influences decision making, that thus influences wildlife management and whether or not we're going to have long-term sustainable populations. Uh, whether we're going to have the habitats that are necessary to support them, all of those kinds of things, because people vote. There is a social license to almost everything that we do in some way, shape, or form, whether that's oil and gas drilling or hunting for that matter. There is a social license to operate. And that's what I was really getting at is, is we need as a profession uh, to ensure that we have a, a knowledgeable public and, while, and support for wildlife management and and we've got some work to do there. There's no question. And I, I don't want to say we're losing ground, but we're we've got to catch up with this changing uh, shift in wildlife values with education or or whatever me- mechanisms we need to do to bridge those gaps uh, to ensure that we do have public support for for professional wildlife management. Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, 
you know, public support, you, you not only, you're a, you're a man who wears many hats, not only are, are you, um, doing all these other things, but you're also the host of this American land, uh, a TV show, uh, which, which I think does a good job of raising general awareness around conservation issues. You've been doing that for what, six, seven years, something like that. Yeah, boy, it's been about seven years now. Yeah. Okay. Six, six, seven years. Anything coming out uh, soon? Will there be any more releases uh, this, this coming year? We're working on, I started in uh, season five. Um, It's interesting how that happened. I was a guest on the sage grouse piece that came out in that particular season. Um, And the executive producer called me back. We were, he's asking some questions and and I answered his question. He said, well, let me shift gears. How would you like to show, to host the show? <laughs> it caught me off guard. And and without hesitation, I blurted out. I said, what, with my face for radio? Come on. <laughs> but he and I talked a little bit about what he was looking for and uh, how how could I resist? You know, it was a really neat uh, opportunity. And I, I've been humbled by it uh, ever since. And I really enjoy it because it allows me the opportunity to either go in the field and, and tell a story, you know, help tell a story or at least introduce stories that are told by our, our crew and the characters that we pick for each of these conservation stories uh, in a way that can resonate with the public. And I think this is really important for our profession uh, to, we need to do a better job either doing it ourselves or leveraging those that can tell the story that resonates with the public. So we keep that support going. So that's one of the reasons I really wanted to do the show uh, was it gave me an opportunity to, to serve as a voice in that and pick some of the stories I thought were important. Um, so, you know, I think, um, uh, you know, in the coming years, there, there are a lot of different kinds of stories that we could put together. I mean, of course, you know, money is always the, the issue with keeping these kinds of series going. So, uh, we have uh, hit a snag along some of those fronts, but um, our season 10 is in production now. COVID hit us, um, hit the, hit that show like it hit a lot of folks and um, kind of stalled things out. But uh, season 10 uh, is being put together and we should have that uh, pulled together. But it's been a very enjoyable experience and I'd like to see more of that. I, You know, some of the stuff that we do at the Wildlife Society has to be approved through our council and uh, much of most of what we do is approved by council. Uh, but I don't think anybody uh, in our professional society would argue that we need to continue and advance and improve upon our, our interface with the public and with diverse audiences uh, to, to help uh, ensure that we do uh, have wildlife conservation uh, as a mainstream thought and a mainstream principle. And it's it, it, it hasn't been that way. I mean, no political platform. How often have you heard, you'll hear climate change in a major political platform, but you don't hear wildlife yeah. conservation or biodiversity or things like that. No, um, no. So we need the public to appreciate and understand that and elect officials that are going to do some things that, uh, that are good for the environment and good for conservation and good for wildlife. No, I, I couldn't agree more. So if people want to learn more about what Ed is doing and the organizations that you're part of, where uh, where should they go? They should Google. Uh, you can even Google TWS. The Wilderness Society doesn't necessarily show up or other 
uh, acronyms with TWS. Wildlife Society pops right up. Uh, it's www.wildlife.org, uh, I believe is the is the address. But just type in the Wildlife Society; it'll pop up. We got a lot going on. Um, a lot of our work centered. We have an annual conference every year, but uh, a lot of our work centers on professional development opportunities, networking. Um, I have a uh, uh, we have a publication uh, shop, obviously. Uh, for our main publications, we publish three scientific journals and then one more popular type of a magazine that's a member benefit. You have to be a member to get that one. But um, a, a lot of our work uh, it really centers on helping professionals uh, do their jobs and um, uh, and and trying to network with the public and and um, and create a create a space where biologists can can bounce ideas off of one another in, in forums that uh, they can discuss these very challenging issues that, that we just talked about. And I kind of mentioned there's, there's lots more, like you said, there's a laundry list of things. So we try to create these networks and, um, but there's a lot of information there that the general public and, and others can garner from just looking at our website, a lot of resources there. Well, it's important work and uh, wish you all the best in this in this new venture. And I, I look forward to, to seeing the things to come in the, in the coming years. And uh, hopefully we can get out bird hunting here sometime soon. Yeah, I would like that a lot. We can solve a lot of the world problems around a campfire, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, have, have a good day, Ed, and, uh, and thanks again. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com.